You strike me as a particularly icy and remorseless man, Mr. Dufresne. It chills my blood just to look at you. By the power vested in me by the state of Maine, I hereby order you to serve two life sentences back to back. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 100, which is just baffling to me that I made it to 100 episodes of this show. And the movie that we watched this week was The Shawshank Redemption, because I had never seen it before. And joining me to talk about it, I have uh, two longtime friends, and uh, they've been on the show before, and I can't say enough good things about them. Keith, how you doing? Hello. And I'm also, here. yes, yes, you are. And you know what? That's a good thing. I'm glad you're here. And also joining us, oh my, who goes all the way back to episode number one in Die Hard with a Vengeance, Charlie. Charlie, how you doing? Hey, oh, I'm here too. Hi. <sighs> So I had never seen this movie before. And when I was thinking of stuff to do for episode number 100, you know, it's a milestone episode and you guys were over, we were, we were wrapping up some D and D and I mentioned this movie and Keith, you had the exact reaction. You, you literally dropped your jaw. The hell have you never (laughs) seen this movie before? You know, and, and Phil brings up a good point in the chat room, which is how is it you haven't seen this given that it played all the time on TNT and TBS. And I honestly don't know. It came out in 1994. I I didn't see it in theaters, but that's not a big deal because it was a fairly limited run from what I'm reading. But somehow I just never watched it. And I don't get it either because it's the kind of movie that I like. I love uh, a lot of Stephen King adaptations. In fact, it wasn't planned to do Stephen King uh, adaptation for episode 99 last week, uh, but some last-minute changes, we did Dr. Sleep, and I really enjoyed that. And this is based on a Stephen King novella called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. I have no excuse. I even like Frank Darabont, who directed this, doing um, Stephen King adaptations. I saw The Green Mile in the theater, which was only a couple years after this movie, and I loved it. Um, also an epic movie. Yeah. And I'm just going to say right now, I loved it. This movie was fantastic. It is worthy of all the praise that it gets in, in top 10 lists of you know movies all time and all of that kind of stuff. It fits. It, it definitely delivers on um, all the praise that people said for it. It was just, just really, really well done. You can tell. Now, Darabont has, uh, has adapted plenty of Stephen King. I mentioned The Green Mile, um, which he he wrote and directed. This He wrote the screenplay directed. Um, he also did uh, The Mist in 2007, which was... Oh, I love that one. Yeah. Um, he, for a while, I honestly thought he was like the only person that could really do Stephen King justice as a director. Um, there's been some other directors since then that have done a pretty good job adapting his stuff. But there's something about the way Darabont writes and adapts King where he makes changes 
but he somehow manages to make those changes. He does just a really good job of adapting it. He makes changes without losing anything. Um, and that's always a tough thing to do, but he also can kind of elevate King a little bit, I feel like. Well, there was also an instance right near the beginning there where there was a change made in casting. However, they didn't change the line, and it just worked out that much better for it. Yes, yes. Uh, and we're, we're going to talk more about that when we get into the cast here in a minute. Um, but this time around, I want to start with Darabont. But yeah, that was, that was a great moment, and we all got a good chuckle out of that. Uh, we actually sat and watched this together today, um, which was really cool, too. So it was a little something different for episode 100. We were able to all sit in the same room um, and watch this movie together. And so Darabont, okay, directing-wise, he's got 11 credits. But he did um, write and he directed one episode in um, The Walking Dead as well. He was a big part of that. And he's worked on, you know, he did uh, some work on The Shield. The Majestic was him back in 2001, uh, if you remember okay. that movie. Um, but he's, he, his writing is really where he's made a lot of his stuff. He's done, you know, additional writing on like the 2014 Godzilla. Um, I mentioned the Mist, the Green Mile, uh, young Indiana Jones adventures. Hmm. If you remember those, he, he, oh, I love the young Indiana Jones. Yeah. He worked on a lot of that, a lot of writing for that stuff. Um, he, uh, he wrote the screenplay for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which we've covered on this show. Um, actually, that movie came out the same year as this, believe it or not. Hmm. Uh, he, he, Busy um, dude. Oh, yeah. So I did read, I read some fun trivia. So Frank Darabont bought the rights for this movie from Stephen King for $1,000. Holy hell. And it, part of it was because they were friends, right? So Stephen King kind of gave him a... Okay. Uh, well, the funny thing was, I guess, according to trivia, um, years later, King never cashed the check for it. And so years later, he framed it and sent it back to Frank Darabont with a note that said, like, hey, in case you ever need bail money, love Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. I really, <laughs> really want that to be a true story because that is awesome. <laughs> well, can you know, considering this day and age, how internet searches, you know, tend to be monitored. You know, yeah. you know, somebody's going to come knocking on his door. Like you search this, <laughs> this, and this. We need to know if you hurt anybody. <laughs> you know, yeah. Got the behavioral analysis unit showing up. It's like, no, no, it's just an author. We're good. <laughs> or is it? So, yeah, I mean, Darabont, it's funny because he doesn't have an extensive list of credits for writing or directing. He's got 22 writing credits. He's got 11 director credits. Uh, quite a few of those are, are TV series. But there's something about his eye for just adapting uh, stuff that really, really does a great job. The whole... the Through the entirety of this movie, like, I just... I believed everything that was going on. I liked how it's this interesting story where you've got, you've got this character who is claims he's innocent of his crime. We have no real kind of proof one way or the other from the beginning of the movie. Did he shoot them? Did he not? Right. And I like that they leave it somewhat ambiguous to start. So, and then he ends up in prison and the joke is, well, everybody here is innocent. Right. But it turns out, no, he's the innocent one of the group, like legitimately. And um, 
it's a, it's a fun or I don't want to say fun, but it's an interesting story about kind of what this guy went through and what all these people go through in this, you know, these institutions. Um, it deals with institutionalization, which I thought was uh, something like, okay, so I didn't come into this movie completely blind, right? I knew of it. I knew the basics, uh, broad strokes of the story that, you know, Andy Dufresne, and he goes to prison and he ends up getting out. And I've seen clips of the movie. Like it's almost impossible at this point, uh, almost 30 years later to have not. Right. Right. But it still could surprise me with stuff. The whole bit with Brooks was one of those moments that for some reason, and I guess in the short story, the novella, it's, it's a, like a paragraph or two. But his whole story of when he gets paroled and when he leaves and he goes to the halfway house and all of that, that's a powerful moment. And it's really interesting to watch. And kind of this this guy who spent 50 years behind bars in this one building, and now he's got to try and somehow survive outside. And it was... And it, go ahead. it was very believable the way that they put that out too, like you felt what he felt and what he was feeling didn't seem forced or fake in any way. It seemed legitimate and real, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It really did. To take straight from the movie, you know, on the inside, he's an important person on the outside. Probably couldn't even get a library card. Yeah. And he, you know, you, you see him trying, like he's this older you know, enfeebled guy. He's got arthritis in both hands. They're trying to have him be bagging groceries. He's like, my hands hurt all the time. I mean, it was it was a powerful uh, scene. It was sad because from the moment you start reading, he starts reading the letter. You know, they're doing the voiceover of him reading uh, the letter. Like, I knew what the end was going to be. I knew it was going to be him um, killing himself and the whole Brooks was here thing. And it it's just this slow. That's the other thing is this movie is a slow burn. Um, it's not an action movie. There's not a, a bunch. Of, there's not even like a large action set piece. Really, you get a couple of scuffles, but there's nothing. There's nothing action oriented about it. So it's just this slow burning drama, and it's long. It's two hours, almost two and a half hours long. But it's just so well paced for being a long slow burn like that. That pace just works. It so. doesn't feel like a long movie, which is good. No, and that is something Darabont is really good at because when I saw The Green Mile, so I mentioned I saw that in theaters, that movie's three hours long. And it didn't feel like a three-hour-long movie. This didn't feel like a a two-and-a-half-hour-long movie. Um, Much like uh, uh, Dr. Sleep last week, same same kind of an idea. There's something about pacing out the story the way that they did here, and the passage of time, I think, helps that too. Because this this movie takes place over 20 years. Roughly, nineteen so, years, almost twenty. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you get by the by the time Red's parole comes around that last time, yeah, it would be twenty. Yeah, and and there's nice little touches of the passage of time. You know, you look at Andy Dufresne over the course of the movie; he's getting a little more gray. He's getting a little more um, kind of tread. You notice he has to hold things a little bit further away to read them. Yep. Yeah. Starts I'll, wearing reading glasses. Yeah. So it was. Uh, it was. It, it was a well-paced movie too. I I, I appreciate that. Um, all right, so cast. Oh boy, uh, was there some good casting in this movie? Uh, let's start with Andy Dufresne though. Tim Robbins. So 
I knew I, I've I've enjoyed Tim Robbins and a lot of stuff. In fact, we talked I talked at length about him when I covered Mystic River, uh, because he deserved his Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in that movie. Uh, he's good in this. He's it's a very different role in here because the first probably half to two thirds of the movie, he's very quiet. He's very reserved. There's not a lot that he's doing. He's just sort of existing. Well, from Mystic River, he kind of was that way in that movie too. It's a different energy to it, but you know, different, different way that he came into that, you know, quiet reserved state, but Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I appreciate that. I appreciate his quiet, his reserved nature, the way that he just sort of... Because you start off with him on trial for the murder of his wife. And even the judge says, you're a cold and unfeeling... You know, you seem like a cold and unfeeling person. He just didn't know how to like connect with people, it feels like. And even when he gets into prison, he's just kind of doing his own thing. They mentioned that he kept to himself and all of this, and he slowly built the friendship. And that's one of the things I really liked was that his friendships inside didn't just happen overnight. He had to build them. Uh, so that felt more real to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tim Robbins is, is fantastic in just about everything you see him in whether he's playing a, a character like this or doing some goofy cameo and like tenacious d in the pick of destiny um charlie you had mentioned that you wish you had seen him in more when we were watching the movie i, I like i i've i liked him in this i've always liked him in this i've liked him in a couple other bigger movies that i've seen and it's just like most of the movies that i've seen him in he has a much smaller like he's not the star or the co-star he's got like a bit part in And then I'm looking through his IMDb page today and I'm going, oh, it's because all the movies that he's the star in aren't really the kind of movies that I watch. So that's why I haven't seen him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so listen to this 1994, by the way. So he was in the the Hudsucker Proxy, the Shawshank Redemption, Ready to Wear. I don't know what that one was, but then IQ also came out in 94. So he's busy. I've seen half of those. (laughs) Um, you know, he had done stuff, uh, earlier. Jacob's ladder is one that a lot of people know him from Cadillac man. Um, tape heads is a movie that is kind of that cult following, uh, thing with him. I remember him in, did either of you see Arlington road? I did not. I have not. Oh, now that is a really, really good thriller, uh, with him and Jeff, uh, Jeff Bridges where they're, uh, Jeff Bridges works or um, thinks that his neighbor played by Tim Robbins is a terrorist, like a domestic terrorist setting off bombs. Um, it's, it's out there, but man, is it a, it a good tense movie? Um, so I recommend that one. He had, I forgot he was the president in Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. <laughs> See like that, huh. like that's a fun little cameo that he would do. Um, Mission to Mars, high fidelity. He was good in. I've mentioned Mystic River, and who boy, Mystic River is is heavy. That's a heavy one. But he is so good in it. Just phenomenal. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tim Robbins is, is great. I did also think it was, uh, they really played up his height in this. And 
I know Charlie, you and I were talking a little bit earlier, and you didn't realize how tall he was. He's six foot five. Like he I, I did not realize how how giant of a man he was. And and um, from what I read, they did Having play to some to get through almost every door. Yeah, they they played some with the the camera angles just to make him seem just a touch taller. Um, but that's because this movie was full of tall people. Uh, you know, another one was um, so so Tim Robbins, Andy Dufresne. I loved it. I I wouldn't recast him at all. I can't think of a, a reason to recast him. Um, so I don't even want to like entertain that idea because I just I don't know who else could bring off the top of my head after seeing it the 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 energy that he does because he's he's got to be very restrained and he ne- like, he never loses it, which is pretty impressive given all the stuff that goes on in this movie to him. He just and even even when he attacks back, he's not losing it. He's he's in control of himself. If not the situation. Yeah, and, and not just the physical attacks either, but like the closest we get is that moment where he calls the warden obtuse when he um when he learns he gets the story of what actually happened to his wife from the other inmate. Um that's like as close as we get to him really freaking out. And just des- you know, deservedly so. I mean, he just found out like here's a perfect way for me to actually get out of prison and the warden won't do it. Um we'll talk about him shortly because who yeah uh, i love that particular part because i actually got to witness someone say that to somebody (laughs) in the proper context and it was gloriously hilarious yes uh um but yeah i mean tim robbins i i it's hard for me to just keep saying he's good but he just brings something to this part and he's perfectly uh playing off of Morgan Freeman as Red, who does a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of story progression and exposition um, from a dialogue standpoint. And Morgan Freeman, of course, uh, is really well known now for doing voiceovers. And uh, this was like the first movie he did that in, which I thought was kind of cool. And this sort of kick-started that part of his career uh, from the trivia that I read. So... And Morgan Freeman also, by the way, not a short dude. He's like six one, six two. So, you know, another pretty tall guy. And I love that he's playing Red. So we mentioned it earlier, but uh, in the story, Red is a old, graying uh, Irishman with red hair. So there were uh, that was something that Darabont changed. He wanted, um, he he really wanted Morgan Freeman for this role. So they but they left in the line. And Keith, I'll let you say it, but um, he, they left in the line with uh, with Red when Tim Robbins asks him why he's Red. And what was his response? Well, I suppose it's because I'm Irish. <laughs> and then this goes right back to hawking the ball. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Uh, just leave that in as a joke. Like, that's a fun one. But Morgan Freeman has got this weight to him this this gravitas that he brings to every role that he's in another thing about morgan freeman they used a picture of his son for his mugshot yeah and and, and all those parole yep and and his son was actually in the movie as well huh he had uh, just a, a quick short little cameo when the when the new inmates are showing up the guy that's that's um doing the fishing reel mime that's um alfonso ah. 
Alfonso Freeman or Alonzo. I can't remember. I think it was Alfonso, but that's uh, Morgan's son. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, also, I read that that scene with the throwing the baseball and, you know, the I guess it's because I'm Irish. That first meeting between Dufresne and Red, they shot for nine hours. Oh, geez, that had to be some sore, sore shoulders. Well, according, Ow, according to the trivia, I, I don't know why exactly, but according to the trivia, he was throwing the ball the entire time and didn't complain and then showed up the next day with his arm in a sling. I'm like, yeah. Just thinking about throwing a baseball for nine hours has my arm tired. And I used to play baseball. So that, yeah. was, a, that was a fun little one. But, I mean, Morgan Freeman, what do you say about that guy? Like, I've talked about him on previous episodes uh, when he's shown up in movies, but he just brings something to the screen that that few people have. And whether it's playing a character like this or um, he's fantastic in Seven, uh, honestly, I liked him in, um, in Wanted when uh, I covered that one a while back. Um, mm. He's just, there's something about Morgan Freeman uh, that I just really really like and I think it's just that that presence that he brings on screen that that most people just don't have and it, it's it's weird so his his voiceover work of course is really well known now um, but he's got a smoothness to his delivery that I think really works and it made the voiceover in this work and I've gone back and forth on and talked many, many times about how I feel about voiceovers in movies. But this is one, again, where it works. I'm, what I'm finding is that I like it more than I thought I did. It's just that the bad versions of narration in movies is what I always think about first. They really do leave more of a scar for you to rub your finger over instead of, you know, that, that silk smooth... Morgan Freeman narration. It's mm-hmm. just, it's as weird as it sounds, it's hard to do right. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're right in that. Like it is difficult to get it done correctly. And, and it, it, you, you had mentioned, you know, you know, would you recast anybody in this movie? I can't think of a single actor that I would recast. No, I, I, when I think about it, I mean, Maybe some of the bit parts, but even there, like, you know, you're not missing a whole lot depending on who's there, but your main actors, no, not at all. Main cast, leave them all as they are. Um, Now, here's a cool bit, and uh, I found this out, and this kind of blew my mind. So I mentioned that this was the first movie Morgan Freeman did voiceover work for, um, and that kind of helped jumpstart that part of his career. He recorded all the narration for this before they shot. Really? Yeah. Um, mm. And that's that's not normal at all. You, typically, you shoot the movie and then you do the narration afterwards to be able to match the cadence and get everything right. They did it in reverse. They actually had it recorded, and then they would play it on set to help dictate the rhythm of a scene. That actually sounds super handy. Uh, I mean, it can. It's a. De- it's definitely a different way to do it. Um, and 
I just thought I found that fascinating fascinating that they did that. I also read that they shot the movie in scene order, which is uh also atypical of filmmaking. But I suppose you know, mentioning that there's no real action sequences to this, uh, it's a little easier to do, right? Because typically when you're shooting stuff out of order, it's because, well, we're going to get the really difficult stuff done first, or we're going to push that back so that we've got more time to prepare for it. And in this case, they shot it in not, not exactly in order, but scene by scene, they would shoot, I guess, in order. Well, that kind of make also makes sense because, you know, you wouldn't have to mess around with hair, dying hair as much. Another costume, you know, wardrobe changes. True. Yeah, like the prison uniforms changed over the years, so you can't really shoot, you know, the stuff that was in the early '60s along with the stuff that was in the late '40s. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, movies do that all the time, so it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's just interesting that they shot this one in order, uh, scene order, but yeah, I was just blown away that he did his narration ahead of time. Uh, you know, he, he just, there's something about the character too, because Red, oh, okay, Wicked Kitten's bringing up some of the Me Too issues with Morgan Freeman in the recent years. Yeah, I, I haven't read a ton about that, but I did hear, and it is unfortunate. Um, so, uh, but Red as a character is, is interesting to me because he is Brooks in a way, right? He's been incarcerated for... How long had he been in when Andy got there? 20 years already? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because he got out of 40 and Andy broke out like year 19. Okay, yeah. So, you know, the the scene with Brooks really affected Red because Red sees himself there and he's he's an institutionalized man. He doesn't know any different. But there's this underlying uh, thread of hope throughout the movie. And really, I think what happened with Andy is the, the, the movie is told from Red's point of view, uh, which is, is interesting because Andy's sort of the main character, but he's not really. It's really uh, Red's movie. It's Red's story. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Andy's story, but Red's telling it. So you're living it and seeing it through Red's eyes. Yeah, but it's really, it's Red's story but that he's telling through telling the story about Andy Dufresne because that that's that that's the better explanation of it. I think because we, we learn because about it really is, you know, red doing, you know, red talks about red and how his things, how his things go. And it's his story that he's relating of Andy Dufresne. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you, you get to see, the mirrored the and the mirrored scenes of Brooks getting out on parole and then Red coming out on parole were interesting to me too because Brooks was you know even more so this idea that he uh like had seen automobiles but now he's out and they're just everywhere and how how different the world was 50 years after he got in and then you're seeing kind of a similar thing with Morgan Freeman and I made the joke while we were watching it when he asked the boss at the, because he's got the same job bagging groceries at the, the shop and save. And he asked the boss to use a bathroom. And the boss is like, you don't have to ask me every time. And my joke was, he's been doing that for 40 years. He doesn't know any different. And sure enough, the next line is, you know, I had to 
I've I had can't to squeeze ask. a drop. Of. Yeah, exactly. Like he just he four doesn't years know. in, and I can't squeeze a drop without say so. Yeah, and it's you know that that kind of stuff actually happens. Um, institutionalization is a is a real thing, um, and if it's all you've known for that much of your life, that's not something easy to get rid of because Andy Dufresne came into his life and because of how things went, it gave Red the hope to do his parole violation and take off to Mexico and kind of live a life again. So, you know, it's, it's kind of cool that way. Um, and Red is a, is a fun fun character, right? He's the guy that can get you whatever you want. And so to have him played by Morgan Freeman, it was just, that was really nice. So you're, you know, it's two for two on the, the two top stars of this movie. And Morgan Freeman, deservedly so, was up for an Oscar that year uh, for Best Actor. He, however, did not win. But I want to talk about Oscars a little bit later because I have thoughts. <laughs> Uh, Bob Gunton played Warden Norton and oh man, is that guy good at playing a bad guy or what? He's oh, yeah. just so viscerally, I'm saying the word wrong, viscerally evil. Yeah, he really, I mean, he's just, he is terrible. He literally has the ability. He doesn't want to reform these people, right? That's not, that's not what he's there for. And, yeah, that is not his goal. His goal is profit. Yeah. And to the point where when he finds out about uh, Dufresne and the possibility that he could lose his you know, accountant guy um, that was laundering all his money, he literally has an inmate killed. Because you know, him, and, him and Captain Hadley are just terrible people, just awful human beings. And oh yeah, Bob, and he, when the when the whole when Headley's brother dies and he finds out about it and they're powering the roof, you know he's holding Dufresne over the edge. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, but I mean Bob Gunton just has this ability to play these slimy characters, right? He's like you you mentioned just evil, like he's just terrible. He's evil. He's slimy. He you just don't like him at all. And man, is he good at that? And I guess apparently, uh, also he didn't have to wear a hairpiece or anything. Like he had just come off of f- filming uh, Demolition Man, so that hair was just what his hair was looking like at the time. <laughs> um, but man, he oh, he's so good in this, and he doesn't have a ton of screen time either. Not really, but when he's there, I and mean, he definitely gives you. The air of the villain, who you know wouldn't be where he is without the without loyal minions, and Hadley is that. Oh, absolutely! No, he's so. Not only is he a terrible human being, not only is he just just evil, but he's a coward too. He he is oh, a yeah. bully. He he gets himself where he is by not having to do anything for himself. So he's got Hadley, he's got his guards, he's in a position of authority, so he can lord that over all these, uh, you know, he's got uh, nothing but inmates that he can do whatever he wants to. So he does whatever he wants to them, and they can't do anything about it. And what happens when he gets found out? He shoots himself in the head. 
yeah, he takes the the cowardly way out. Um, so he's just he's he's a terrible person on all levels. Um, and, and played brilliantly by Bob Gunton. Like I'm sure Bob Gunton is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Uh, but man, can he play just a a total bastard? So, uh, we mentioned Captain Hadley. I got to talk about Clancy Brown because Clancy Brown, man. Uh, the Kurgan, Mr. Krabs, you know, that dude is, and it's interesting to see him standing. I hadn't realized that he was Mr. Krabs. Yeah. Yep. He did, did the, does the voice of Mr. Krabs. Um, I unabashedly love Clancy Brown in anything he is in. I went and saw Cowboys and Aliens in theaters and he showed up in the beginning of that. And I had a, a audible geek out moment in theaters seeing Clancy Brown on screen. Um, I mentioned the Kurgan, uh, one of the greater, uh, greatest villains in, in fantasy films. And now you got Captain Hadley and I'd always heard Captain Hadley was a, was a great villain character. Man, was the he tightest ever. crew to ever walk a turn at Shawshank. Holy cow. Like just sadistic. I mean, you're introduced to him in the second scene that you see him in. He just beats somebody pretty much to death in the middle of the cell block for no repercussion. Yeah. Yeah. And he's able to do this whenever he feels like he has complete autonomy to do what he wants. Um, it's something else, you know, after Andy helps him with the, with the, uh, money thing, you know, the, the one prison gang, you know, gets to Andy and then, as soon as he gets out of the hole, you know, he's walking back to his cell. Ha ha. No big deal. Walks into his cell, turns on the light and there's Hadley. And. You know, <laughs> yeah. And oh no, that, that gang never touches Andy again. And Boggs never walks again. Well, here you... he spent the rest of his days in a, in a mental hospital, eating his food, you know, drinking his meals through a straw. Well, and the look on Boggs' face, too. Like, the second that light comes on and he sees Hadley there, he's just got the, oh, shit, look. Like, I'm done. And there's nothing you can do about it. Like, Hadley is just, he he takes pleasure in doing what he does. And it's funny because that's almost a good thing that he did by sticking up for Andy after after he got the crap kicked out of him. But it's no way almost. redeeming. Yeah, it's almost. Like, it would be, except that he probably went way, he went, well, not even probably, he went way too far in, in nearly killing Boggs as well. Um, but yeah. This guy just, did something nice. This guy helped me save a lot of money. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> I thing. Might of, need, I might need this guy again. Yeah, because the thing about it is, by that point, Andy <laughs> was doing taxes for, the, uh, for everybody and, and doing all this accounting stuff for them. And they were basically getting it for free or super cheap. So, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things. But, man, Hadley is just... And Clancy Brown is another one of those actors with a presence. With this... He's a big guy, too. He's six foot three. So it's it was crazy when I, when I would watch as I'm watching this. Because he's just... He's big. But then he's standing next to Tim Robbins, who's another two inches taller than him. And they played it up a little bit. But... You know, Clancy Brown is a big, imposing figure, and his voice, too. He's got the voice. I mentioned doing the voice acting for Mr. Krabs, but he has tons of voice acting. 
and all sorts of stuff. If you look at his IMDb, oh, he's, he's a great raspy voice. Yeah, his IMDb is two hundred ninety six credits, right? So in on screen and voice acting, um, and he just does so much. But he has got this ability to play these heavy characters, and I say heavy as in they just they just have this heavy presence. Yes. The Kurgan is another one, uh, and and I talked at length about that when uh, when I've covered the Highlander movie, and how much I love the Kurgan as a villain. And honestly, I'd put Captain Hadley right up there with him because of the sadistic nature, because of how much he enjoys hurting these, pain. yeah, hurting these people, these people who can't stop him from doing it, mm-hmm. and he just does it because he can. So yeah, that's just. Ugh. Great, great character, and like Clancy Brown, just put him in a movie. I'm watching it, period, bar none. I, I don't care what it is. I'm watching that something that he is in. He showed up in The Mandalorian, that was awesome. Um, in one in one episode, like he's you know he's just done so much work, and you're right, that raspiness to his voice really really does it too. Even him showing up, he did uh, a cameo in. The Flash or one of the CW shows as a general, and then he did the voice of um, Gorilla Grodd, and he was great as that. Like, just he's yeah, he's in the Arrowverse. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's that you know that Marine jawline. It you know the clean shave, just full on. He is there to mess things up, and I really have a feeling that uh, the warden character saw the kind of man that he was and decided this is who I'm putting in charge of my guard because I know that I can use him mm-hmm. and he will give me all the loyalty because I let him do that. Yep. Oh yeah. So yeah, give me more Clancy Brown all, all the time. And man and and his the scene on the roof tells you so much about him because he here he is, his brother dies. His brother's like a millionaire back in what, the forties? early 50s, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. He's complaining that he gets $35,000 because his, the only thing he can think of is all the taxes he's going to have to pay on it. And Andy overhears that, decides to, uh, you know, throw his hat in the ring, do something, and what's the guy's first reaction? Hold him over the side of a building and threaten to drop him. Like, <laughs> you know, he's just, whew, something else. Uh, and, but but he, even being held over the side of a root off the edge of the roof like that, Andy is still not panicking. No. no. He's, he's trying to think fast on his feet, but he's not panicking. Yeah, yeah, and that is the thing, and I should have I should have talked about that better, but that was when, when Tim Robbins is playing Andy Dufresne and he's very reserved, that's part of it, is he was calculating, right? Because as we find out at the end of the movie... This was a long con, or not even a long con, but just a long... He was playing the long game from all the way back when he got... Uh, when he started to carve his name into the wall. Um, now, I, I... I remember thinking it would take a man 600 years to dig to tunnel through the walls at Shawshank. And yep. Dufresne did it in just under six. And it was one of Something those where... When, uh, when... Because I knew the outcome of the movie... Um, and it's, it's not a spoiler, whatever, like, but because I, so I don't feel like I missed anything, but because I knew that I kind of 
retroactively figured out, oh, okay, so this is where it started was that moment where he was carving his name into the wall with the little hammer, and that's when he made his plan, and he just took a long time to do it. But if you think about it, too, um, there's a scene where him and Red are playing checkers, right? And what's he do? He brings up playing chess, and he brings up how it's calculating and how you, you do this, you do that. And, I mean, when you're in prison and you've got nothing but time, you can plan this stuff out ahead. If he's a chess player, he was planning his moves well ahead of everybody. So, yeah, it's good, good stuff. Uh, but oh, and, and let's not forget, you know, where he hid his rock hammer. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, we'll get to that. I want to. I, I got a couple more cast members I do want to mention real quick. Um, the main one being William Sadler as Haywood. It's a smaller role, but he's prominent, and he went on to work with Darabont a few more times. He had a a small role in The Green Mile. He was in The Mist. I like William Sadler. Um. I, I've enjoyed him in many, many things. What I liked about him in this was that at first I thought he was going to be kind of the stereotypical um, kind of jackass, but he sort of was, but he was also like a good guy and a friend. Well, yeah, if if you made it to it, you know, if, if you earned his trust, he was a good guy to you. You know, he was a friend. But if he didn't know you, he didn't trust you, and... How do you how do you get that across to somebody you know? Yeah, fast and in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Play the ass. Also, he he possibly is my favorite version of uh, death in a movie from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Oh, that was him, wasn't it? <laughs> yep, he was death, and he's great. Best to a. He also does best the best bad. He also does the best the best bad singing on headphones. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, when he shows up and stuff, like he's another one of those. His career really got, um, for me, got going towards the late '90s, uh, and then seeing him now as kind of the older, the elder statesman, right, playing like a president in Iron Man Three, playing some of these older characters that you're seeing him as now. Um, and I just I like Sadler, uh, so. <laughs> The whole it makes me want to go back and watch Bogus Journey just for that whole board game scene though because he's brilliant in that. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, like you sunk my battleship. Yeah, he's he's legitimately funny too. You don't get that when you're seeing him in this or, you know, I saw him in The Green Mile and I saw him in Die Hard uh, Two, and because I didn't I didn't make the connection that it was the same actor for a long time doing Death in Bogus Journey. Because of the makeup. Well, the makeup does it, and they do play him up to be a bit taller in there, there too. Yeah. Um, but he's legitimately got really good comedic timing, too. So, you know, he's he's got a lot of range. I like William Sadler. Um, and he was a nice little side character to have uh, as, um, was it, Haywood. So. Plus, he's got the great moment with um, Brooks, because at that point in the movie, Brooks is just this kindly old man, right? He's, he's just the, he is the elder statesman of the prison. He's, um, and so to have the librarian since 1912. Right. Um, and so to have this scene start with Brooks has a knife to Haywood's throat. 
um, is kind of a crazy way to start that scene out because you wonder what happened leading up to that. Because, hey, I mean, Haywood at this point could be kind of a jackass, right? He'd, make, he'd crack jokes. But, you mm-hmm. know, he was legit. He was genuinely like a, a nice guy to his friends. So you have to wonder what happened leading up to that at the beginning of that scene. Now, you, you get you know, all the information, but it was just it was a really cool scene. and It was a good choice to have Haywood be the one at the end of the knife. And, uh, and James, honestly, he wasn't doing anything rude either at that point. He was just no. he, he was there to well wish his friend. Yep, exactly. And didn't realize that, you know, doing so would spark a powder keg. Yeah, well, I mean, he had no idea. He had no way of knowing. And it was, you know, that was James Whitmore as Brooks, just Brooks just losing it. Like he doesn't, he he was afraid. He was afraid to leave. He didn't want to go. I mean, that whole scene. That was all that he'd known of the world for, at that point, 50 years. Yeah, and the whole scene where uh, he's reading the thing and he, he says, you know, think about um, violating my parole just so I can go back home. Like, ooh, that's that's something else. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just a great cast top to bottom. And some of the smaller uh, roles, you know, Larry Brandenburg or Jeffrey DeMunn or um, David Proval as Snooze, you know, they're, they're actors that you don't know the name of. I, I don't necessarily know their names but you, you see him and he's like oh yeah I've seen that guy he's a good character actor he pops up with like this kind of role a lot um, so it was it was cool to see um, but yeah just a solid cast top to bottom and Morgan Freeman I okay so this movie was nominated for seven Academy Awards it was not a financial success at the box office um, anyone want to guess uh, the estimated budget for this movie Charlie? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Two million? Well, a little more than that. Um, budget was around, 20, no around 25 million, which isn't huge, even by 1994 standards. Um, it's a good size budget. It's, uh, I know they had a lot of work to do to get sets built and the prison uh, location kind of set up the way that they wanted. So, modest budget. Unfortunately, its box office was only $28 million. So it got a really limited release at first, and then it got a secondary release um, for award season as it was getting Oscar buzz. But it's amazing to think that this movie is put on so many lists as, you know, best movie of all time or top 10 movie, top 15 movie, whatever. And it just it wasn't popular. And some people think that the title hurt it, right? Because the title of The Shawshank Redemption doesn't tell you a whole lot about what's really going on. They did change the title of the novella was Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And Frank Darabont was like, I'm going to change the title of that because people are going to get confused and think this is a Rita Hayworth biopic. Um, and in fact, he even hey. got, he, he even got a, uh, an agent calling him saying that for like a supermodel or something who said it was the best script that they had read. And she was perfect for the part of Rita Hayworth. A part that doesn't exist. So uh-huh. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. But I think some people think that like the, the title being the Shawshank Redemption and sort of the word of mouth um, or lack of word of mouth rather hurt it. And it somewhat makes sense. In 1994, 
we didn't have much in the way of the internet and advertising wasn't the, the advertising budgets weren't nearly as high. I don't remember um, until it was coming out on video, seeing many ads for this movie. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that it didn't do well in the box office, but it did do well in award season or at least nominations wise. Uh, Cause like I said, it got seven Oscar nominations. Here's the sad part though. Nominated for seven Oscars. You know how many of those they won? None of them. None. Not a one. Um, and that's just wrong. Well, okay, so it was up for Best Picture, uh, Best Actor, Best Writing uh, for a Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, which I want to okay. talk about as well. How, how did it lose Best Adaptation? It lost Best Adaptation be, the same way it lost Best Picture and Best Actor. It came out the same year as Forrest Gump. Mm. Forrest Gump won Best Picture, Tom Hanks won Best Actor, and Forrest Gump won Best uh, Adapted Screenplay that year. So it just hit the buzzsaw. That'll that'll do it. Also, uh, at one point, Tom Hanks was going to be in the Shawshank Redemption, but he had to bow out because of scheduling conflicts with Forrest Gump. So imagine that. Imagine him having been in both of those. <laughs> it's kind of kind of weird well, to think he, about. Well, he was also in Green Mile, so... Yeah, he did get to work with Darabont a couple years later. Um, so in hindsight, it's hard for me to say that Forrest Gump doesn't deserve the credit that it gets. But at the same I time, it's it's hard for me to say that it is a clearly better film um, than I, at the time... I loved Forrest Gump and I've watched it since then. And it's not terrible by any stretch. It's still very, very good, but I don't feel like Shawshank Redemption just holds up so much better. Well, that's what I'm wondering is, is Shawshank Redemption, I think has aged better as a film and as a story than Forrest Gump. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Charlie? I I can agree with that. It, it, where Forrest Gump, yeah, it's, it's another, story that's set among the ages of history and following, but that one's more following popular events instead of just set during the time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you, when you look back at Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump doesn't, you're right. It doesn't age or get better with time where the Shawshank, you can see more meaning in everything every time you watch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's kind of where I come come down on that as well. After now, after everything's seen it. Like I can see rewatching this movie more and more and getting more out of it every time I watch it. And that's not to say that Forrest Gump is a bad film, but there's something about this story, this redemption story too, because Forrest Gump, I don't want to, I don't want it to seem like I'm bad mouthing that movie, but a lot of what happens is coincidental. And he just, Forrest happens to be there at the time or happens to be part of history. Like it follows his life, but it's almost accidental. The things that he gets involved in. Whereas this, this movie is about a man who is forced into a situation and ends up making something out of it by playing a long game and just out thinking everybody, including the people that were his friends. Nobody had a clue what he was doing. 
and he'd been doing it for quite a while. So it's I, I just his favorite hobby was toting his <laughs> toting his wall out in the yard one handful at a time. Yeah. So I, I think I think that's that's kind of where I fall on that. It's like this this story I can watch and get more out of every single time. Forrest Gump, uh I can certainly rewatch it and there's definite moments in there that I like, but as a whole front to back, um, not as much. And there's moments in Forrest Gump that really drag. Uh, I don't, I don't like the, the Jenny arc much, um, really at all. So, uh, best explanation I heard about Forrest Gump is that Forrest never grows as a character. He doesn't do anything. just happen. Things happen to him. That's a pretty good point. There's the only character growth he really has in my mind is right at the end of the movie when he is concerned that his son with Jenny is like him. Right? That's that's kind of all of Forrest Gump's growth. But that all happens at one time. The rest of the movie, things are just happening to him. In this, you're getting growth and you're getting character arcs. You get the arc of Red. Because Red is really... He's Red is super confident. He's the guy that can get you whatever you want. But by the end of the movie, and you you see this through the replaying or the 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 scene of him going in front of the parole board, the first time, then once in the middle, and then once again. And just by that third time, he's going in front of the parole board after thirty years. He's just beaten. He's no longer that uh, bright. The, the first time, the first time he goes in front of him, he's you can see he's got hope. He's hoping to get out. Yeah. The second time, he's he shed his illusions about it, and the third time, he's just okay. I'm broken. I'm I'm just gonna go out there and say it. Yeah, and not only that, but he. What do I have to lose? Yeah, but he also like he's not shying away from what he did. He just wishes that he had the ability to talk to his younger self and do things differently. And so he has grown as a character. You get growth even out of, uh, I mentioned Haywood. You get growth out of Andy in some ways um, because he has the whole scene. Like Andy really uh, blames himself for his wife's death, even though he, as he says, I didn't pull the trigger, but I drove her into the arms of another man who ended up getting killed and getting her killed. Like, he blames himself for everything that happened, even though he didn't do it. So, yeah, I just, this is, this should have, in my opinion, probably won the Oscar. And I think if I were voting and having seen all of the movies, I would have voted for this. Um, this was also up for best cinematography and I didn't. So, okay. <laughs> we're watching the movie and there's the scene where, um, Andy gets sent to work with Brooks for the first time as the library assistant. And then you hear um, Hadley call him over and they bring in the other guard and the guard wants to set up a, a trust fund for his kids to go to college. They mentioned that that guard's name was Deacons. Now, when I heard that, I thought, wow, I wonder if Roger Deacons worked on this or not. Because Roger Deacons is a cinematographer and I've talked about him a lot because he's one of the best. Turns out he did. <laughs> he, he because did. you're kind of a cinematography nerd, and like, yeah, you talk about it a lot. Yeah, but I mean, it, I was just like, I wonder if that was because Roger Deakins did this, and sure enough, yes, he actually did work on this movie. Um, 
he did was they give, nominated. Did they give that to him as a cameo, or no, that wasn't him. And actually, apparently, okay. from what I read, the character was even named before Deacons was selected to do it. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But he um, was nominated for an Academy Award for this movie. He didn't win it. He didn't win an Academy Award for cinematography until 2017 for Blade Runner 2049. Oh, wow. That in and of itself is pretty crazy, but let me give you just a few of the movies he did between 1994 and 2017. He did a film uh, we've covered on this show, Fargo. He did Kundun, which is a, a movie about the Dalai Lama um, that I saw uh, in college and is fantastic. And looks amazing. The Big Lebowski. Uh, oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He didn't Ooh. win for cinematography for that. Um, uh, yeah. I think he got robbed there because that was a great movie. Jarhead. No Country for Old Men. The House of Sand and Fog. Um, Revolutionary Road. True Grit. Really? Uh, he uh, Skyfall. Um, Sicario. He was even uh, brought in as a cinematography consultant for the film Rango, which is an animated film. Uh, But he finally won for Blade Runner 2049. And it's a travesty that it took that long for him to win because this guy is just, and I I mean, he's basically done. That is an impressive resume. Yeah, he's pretty much done every Coen Brothers film since uh, Hudsucker Proxy, I believe. 94 was, I think, the first no, he did Barton Fink too, um, but he's he's basically worked with the uh, the Coen Brothers forever. Um, he just he's so good at what he does, and it's funny that I just I didn't even think about him being in it. And then then I as I'm after I heard the name Deacons, I started paying more attention to the cinematography. I can't believe this didn't win that either. Like this movie shot brilliantly. Um, I love the use of cranes. Uh, crane camera shots and overhead shots and I really like uh, just the way they composed everything it, it has this look of this monochrome look without having to go through some kind of like sepia tone filter so oh yeah the grays muted blues yeah like it doesn't I mean, look the like the only it, time you ever really see any color is in the guard captain's badges yeah so they're the only ones with the gold badges others are silver but what i like about that is they were able to achieve that look without having to use a ton of it didn't feel like they used a ton of desaturation filters or anything like that it just was the way they lit things um so yeah i really really liked that um that it's naturally monochrome in the setting that they were filming yes yeah that's true and phil brings up a perfect point the tracking shots of the inmates listening to the opera when Andy plays that over should have won on the Oscar that whole, that whole moment with the, all that stuff playing was just beautifully shot. So yeah. Yeah. I agree with you, Phil. And That's that's one of the best scenes in the movie, you know, just, just that brief moment. Every man in Shawshank was free. Yep. And interesting note, that's not part of the original story. That was added by Darabont. And that's what I was talking about at the beginning of the show with Darabont, like his ability to adapt 
is really good and take something like this this short story or this novella from Stephen King and then he throws in this little bit in the middle of it it's one of the most powerful things but it feels like it belongs there it doesn't feel like it was tacked on or or, or came from something else like I could if if you hadn't told me that that wasn't part of the original novella I wouldn't have known unless I read it I just wouldn't have. I would have assumed that was part of it. So lots of credit there to Darabont uh, for that part as well. Um, but yeah, Roger Deakins, like how did he not win for that? And again, the the best adapted screenplay went to Forrest Gump. I will say I'm not going to knock Tom Hanks as uh, best actor because that was... Boy, that was in a stretch where Tom Hanks was winning everything, right? I think that was his second or third in a row. Had he done... Philadelphia was the year before that, so I think it was his second in a row. Um, so, yeah, I just... Uh, Morgan Freeman definitely deserved the uh, nomination, though. So, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I can keep talking about how much I love this movie. I... And it I, is great. I am ashamed to say it took me almost 30 years to see it full, especially given how many times it was it was shown on TV. Because I think one of the trivia bits I read was that Ted Turner either had the rights or bought them um, and then sold them to like TNT, which he owned, so it could play pretty much all the time. Um, and I will say... That this was the first time that I've actually watched this movie with language in it because I've only ever seen it on cable. <laughs> that is pretty funny. So you're you're so used to seeing you know everything cut in eighty yard and and all that kind of stuff. How different was it to watch with the language? It, it could, you don't really think about that. There's a lot of bad language in this movie, but there's a lot of bad language in this movie, and some of it just got cut. And some of it got uh, censored with different words. And it's just, it's a little jarring to suddenly hear them actually swearing. And I'm trying to find the trivia bit where it talked about um, how much or how many times it's played on television. Because, you know, I'm getting people in the chat talking about, you know, the number of times it's always on TNT, TBS, you know, seeing it... Uh, all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, it's amazing that I never just sat down and watched it. Maybe it was because I didn't want to watch it cut up on TV. I kind of have a thing about that where I don't, unless it's a movie I've already seen, I typically don't like to watch a, a cable version of it because I don't want to have that taken away. And you at know? least it was never as bad as the, uh, the cleaned up version they did for USA of showgirls. Well, yeah, I mean, that's playing showgirls. Like, is like I, I watched that just to see how bad the editing was. And seriously, it looks like somebody just took a Sharpie <laughs> and drew something on the ladies. Like it, it's, <laughs> it, it was bad. Yeah. Og, Og in the chat brings up a good point. Language makes it feel more real, right? Cause it's the language you would expect in a prison, which I get. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I will say, though, that watching it this time versus when I've watched it before, I don't think they cut any scenes out. I don't. I didn't see anything that, oh, I haven't seen this before because it's a live version. It's just the language that they changed. 
Yeah, and really when you think about it, there's no, like there's violence in the form of somebody getting punched or kicked, but there's not like this horrendously awful violence. It's not a gory movie by any stretch. I mean, you see a couple people with like... there's only one scene of somebody getting shot. Yeah. So from that aspect, visually, there's not a lot you would have to cut, Um, which is also probably another reason why TNT likes playing it because then you can program a three-hour block and put a lot of commercials in there yeah. um or four, I, I would say that four hours I, I i do take that back they, they do censor the uh suicide scene at the end a mm. little bit yeah like okay. you don't you don't you just see the after effects you don't actually see and hear you you hear the window break but you don't see the window break like you do yeah. in the unedited version okay that you're right i and i didn't even think about that but that would definitely be a, a scene mm. that you okay would. so there's two scenes then um, by the way, uh, in 2013, this movie was played for 151 hours, uh, of us airtime or roughly wow. six, six days and seven hours straight of playing this movie is, is how much it ran for that year on TV. So <laughs> that's a lot. That is a lot of time spent for one particular piece of media. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, um, I mean, look, this movie deserves to be on lists. You know, Phil brought up um, that sometimes a movie like this can get built up to impossible hype. And I was, I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit worried that I would just be kind of meh about it after it got done. Like, well, you know, it was good, but it wasn't uh, It wasn't the mind-blowing experience that, that, that I thought it would be. No, it was, it was all of that. Like, it was that good. Um, this is a movie that 25 years later still holds up like it still affected me um there are moments in this that are just rough if this movie came out this week you know it you know assuming that we could go to theaters (laughs) i believe that i would still go to this it could be exactly this and and still get nominated oh for sure no this did do well yeah yeah the the way that the storytelling and the story at heart, the way all of that is done is really tested, uh, stood the test of time. So it's, if you're like me and you haven't watched this movie yet, what the hell is wrong with you? Stop what you're doing. Go watch it. Because as somebody who waited almost 30 years to see it, I can tell you it's worth, it's worth watching. It's not streaming anywhere right now, which was a one bummer. So it's got a little bit of a barrier to entry. You got to already have it on DVD or pay the three ninety nine to rent it on Amazon or YouTube or wherever. But it's worth it. It's worth every penny of that. It is that good, in my opinion. I and I don't mind a slower paced movie if the pacing is consistent and it doesn't feel like it drags. This never feels like it drags. Um, I watched the Irishman um, from Martin Scorsese, and that's three hours and three and a half hours, whatever it is. But there are parts of that movie that just drag on. Like you could have cut parts of that movie and not missed them. I couldn't figure out where you would cut anything in this off the top of my head. Like I would have to really be thinking about scenes to want to cut anything because it all serves the story. Everything is moving things along, even if it's just thematically and not plot. I, I think another thing that helped is 
we haven't really had to mention anything about, you know, Derevant having to fight with a studio or anything about making this movie the way he wanted to. No, I, I haven't. Heard, I don't think I've ever heard of a director's cut of this movie. No, and in fact, uh, I read that he didn't want like the deleted scenes. He didn't want to put them on the DVD. And Phil, maybe you can tell me if they are or not. But he was embarrassed by them, so he didn't want them out there, which is kind of interesting, right? I really think he got to make his movie. Now, I did read some things that there was tensions between like actors and Dan Darabont on set, but you know filmmaking and especially film uh you know artistry like that you're always going to have that and material like this and kind of heavier material i get that so um that doesn't doesn't bother me but you're right there is no there's no talk of a director's cut there's no because it doesn't need it like this movie is just let it be what it is it's so well done it is it is people working i always love to see work from artists at the top of their craft and Darabont writing and directing. And it's a, it's a good, it's a solid story from Stephen King that Darabont elevates. And then his direction elevates it. The cast is just out of this world. Um, it's got some of the best use of voiceover in a film that I can think of that isn't like a documentary. Right. Um, but it, it, it like, the parts are so good. Roger Deakins cinematography, the music is really good. Um, it's not the, it's funny because the, I don't remember any of the music, but like it fits the scene so well. Um, it, it, it's one of those where all the parts are doing so well. And then the movie is like more because of that. It's more than the sum of its parts and all of its parts are really, really good. So, you know, between Morgan Freeman, Tim Robbins, Bob Gunton, uh, Bob Gunton and Clancy Brown as kind of your dual antagonists are just phenomenal because you've got the physical imposing and then you've got the mental. Because that scene with Gunton where he comes into uh, solitary after a month and tells Andy, you're going to do what I'm telling you you're going to do and there's going to be no more questions about that. And just lays it out and then says, give him another month and walks away. Like, that's just terrible. So, he, like, these are some great cinematic villains without having to do much um, villainy. Like, just existing, they're terrible, terrible people and great villains. So, Yeah, they're, they're villains that don't have to threaten the world or the status quo. Nope. In fact, they are the status quo. Exactly. And that's, that makes... and that's what makes them terrifying. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, this just it's good. It, it's this is good stuff. I'm so glad I finally watched it. And this made for a perfect entry for episode 100, which I can't believe I've made 100 of these now. Like and I want to say thank you to everybody that has come along with me on this journey through 100 episodes of this show that got started as an idea between a couple of friends that I eventually ran with and to have all of you that have come along and joined me on this and, and been on an episode or listened to episodes or talked about, uh, the movie, if it's gotten you to see a new movie. Um, I just, I can't say enough about that. It's, uh, and, and I'm, I'm definitely not done. I'm definitely not slowing down. 
you know, I haven't taken a break since I started doing this two years ago and I don't plan on it anytime soon. I enjoy doing this, but I enjoy doing it because of everybody else involved. Whether you listen, whether you participate, um, you know, I just, I, I can't say enough good things. You guys have been along, uh, since the very beginning. Um, just everybody, it's, it's so wonderful. And I couldn't have done it without any of you. Um, it, it's been such a fun ride. Thanks for having me along. You know, I, I've got to say, I always enjoy being on the show and it never feels like a chore. No, I, and, and I'm glad, I'm glad that it doesn't feel like a chore. And, you know, I look at the recording as we're going and, you know, we can sit here and go for an hour, hour and 15 minutes, like it's nothing. And I love that. I love being able to do that. And I love having everybody come on and getting these different viewpoints too. You know, I've gotten to look at, I've gotten to see movies through different eyes that I love. I've gotten to see new movies, um, that I have never thought about before. I've gotten to see new movies that I just should have seen by now or, or expose somebody to something that maybe was outside their wheelhouse. You know, maybe they're not a horror fan, but they decided to watch a, a horror movie for the first time and come on my show and talk about it or whatever it is. I love that. And I love having these conversations. So thank you to everybody for helping me to get a uh, hundred episodes of this show. You guys are great. If you want to be like all the wonderful people in the chat room right now, Monica and Amy and Phil and Og and Smashy and Phelan and hanging out, Audie, Steven in my chat room, I record every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. And it's great. It's wonderful having the chat go. Uh, I love reading it while we're talking. So if you want to stop by and hang out and yell at me and tell me how I'm wrong, tell me how I'm right, whatever whatever tickles your fancy, please do. Uh, the show comes out as a podcast on Wednesdays, and you can get it anywhere podcasts are available. Um, it's Apple Podcasts, Google. Uh, Podchaser is a really good one. Um, there's an RSS feed. If you go to tvstravis.com, it's the easiest way because I've got buttons for all of those right there. Um, and you can even just copy the RSS feed, put it in your podcast player of choice. So, um, yes, tell me that my hair is amazing. Thank you, Smash. Um, but, uh, yeah, every Wednesday new episodes come out. So, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, definitely, uh, and if, if you do listen and you do subscribe, uh, number one, I appreciate it more than you know. But if you could, uh, if you could do me a favor, just drop a review, um, at you know Apple or at Google or wherever, because it helps make the show more discoverable and get more people to see it uh, when they search. So, you know, the more people that can find it, the more people that can listen and hopefully take something away from it that they like. So, um, I appreciate that. But Charlie, Keith, thank you guys for being on this week. This was uh, this was a ton of fun, as always. Thanks for having me. Always enjoyable. And it was really cool to get to sit and watch the movie with the two of you as well. Um, obviously, that's not something that I can do very often, but it was a nice uh, extra wrinkle to be able to sit in the same room and watch this movie. So, <clears throat> yes, here's to another 100. We'll, we'll, let's, let's do that. We'll go for another 100 episodes. I've got some good ones coming up, too. Um, I, uh, next week, let me find it here, um, but I've got, I've got some good guests lined up and some movies that are going to floor a few people. Um, some movies coming up. I won't tell you the guests yet, but uh, scheduled 
coming up in the coming weeks are Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Usual Suspects, Predator, uh, Dunkirk, and The Prestige. So we've got some fun stuff coming. Um, I can't wait. I cannot wait. Dunkirk's the most recent of those, and I think that's the one of that list that I haven't seen, Mm -hmm. which should surprise people. (laughs) Well, I think if it had come out prior to 2017, you probably would have seen it by now. So, um, but yeah, uh, I, I cannot wait to talk about, um, these next three who frame Roger Rabbit, the usual suspects and predator, because they're three of my favorite movies, uh, kind of period. Like, I just love, love, love these movies and I cannot wait to talk about them with folks. So, uh, yeah, be ready to come back next week and hear me gush about, uh, who frame Roger Rabbit. Uh, with Emily from, um, uh, what I can't remember. It. I'll have to find the, the podcast again, but, uh, Emily is going to be my guest next week. And, um, there you go. That's, that's what it is. That's right. Amy, you were the one that told me to, uh, to get a hold of her. Uh, the fuck boys of literature is her podcast. And, uh, <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about who framed Roger Rabbit. So this should be interesting. Um, that's that movie be next is week. so good. Oh, it is. Oh, and, yeah. And the groundbreaking like uh, way that they shot it and all the stuff that they did is just so great. Yeah. Well, there, there is my rating. Um, yeah. The animation, Audie, you're gonna, you're gonna enjoy this uh, conversation. I think I may actually have to poke at you and get some, get some info. Um, but that's gonna be next week. Who framed Roger Rabbit? So, uh, look, everybody, um, this has been uh, a great ride so far of a hundred episodes, and here's to a hundred more. And uh, just remember, you know, we say it just about every week to enjoy your movies. Uh, Thank you, Phelan, for coining that phrase. And be excellent to each other. Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick moment and talk about something that I said during the show. Uh, I mentioned that Warden Hadley had taken the coward's route out when he committed suicide, and that was a little cavalier on my part. Um, I should have clarified a lot more that Warden Hadley himself was a coward and went out that way, but suicide is not a cowardly action. Um, And if you are having trouble with that or have in the past, I just want you to know that I see you and I understand. And uh, I should choose my words more carefully in the future. Um, But if you need someone to talk to, uh, please do talk to somebody, uh, whether it's a friend, a family member, a therapist, or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You are not alone, and we're all here for you. Thank you. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> <laughs>